Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Ryan Grimm. I'm the Washington Bureau Chief for the Huffington Post. The, the panel we're doing here today is on the science of marijuana and the implications of legalization. It's presented jointly with the Huffington Post. Our program is part of the Dr. Lawrence H. and Roberta Cohn forums. Now, Dr. Cohn passed away last year. However, we're pleased to welcome Roberta Cohn in the audience today. Thank you. This event is streaming, li streaming live on the websites of the forum and on the Huffington Post and also at Huffington Post. So our panelists, starting from my immediate right, Marie McCormick, who is a, uh, let me get this correct, it's a long title, <laughs> Professor of Maternal and Child Health, Harvard Chan School, and Chair of the Committee that published the, the recent landmark study, Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, the Current State of Evidence and Recommendations for Research. We're also joined by Stacy Gruber, Director of Cognitive and Clinical Neuroimaging Care, Director Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery Program at McLean Hospital, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Vaughn Rees, Lecturer on Social and Behavioral Sciences, Harvard Chan School, and an Addiction Specialist. And also, finally, Andrew Friedman, Co-Founder and Partner, Friedman and Kosky, and he's former Director of Marijuana Coordination for the State of Colorado. So we're going to do a, uh, a a brief Q&A towards the end. You can uh, email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also submit them uh, on, on Facebook towards the end of the uh, forum. We'll take as many of those questions as we possibly can. We have a clip from Sean Spicer that, uh, the, who's going to get us started here. <laughs> I think there's a big difference between medical marijuana, which states have a um, the states where it's allowed in accordance with the appropriations rider have set forth a process to administer and and um, and regulate that usage versus recreational marijuana. That's a very, very different subject. I did want to follow up on this medical marijuana yeah. question. So is the federal government then going to take some sort of action um, around this recreational marijuana in some of these states? Well, I think that's a question for the Department of Justice. I do believe that you'll see greater enforcement of it. Um, because again, there's a big difference between the medical use which Congress has through an appropriations rider in 2014 um, made uh, very clear what the intent of what, uh, what their intent was uh, in terms of how the Department of Justice would handle that issue. That's very different than the, the re recreational use, which is something that the Department of Justice, I think, will be further looking into. Okay. Thank you, Sean Spicer. Uh, there's, there's nobody here from the Department of Justice to ask this question, so uh, instead we're going to treat it from this perspective. And, and now, now, Marie, I did want uh, okay. to hear, so your perspective, particularly with regard to the, the study that was re released on January, uh, if the Department of Justice or Sean Spicer were going to take the scientific evidence into account when making policy, what, what should they know? Sure. The reason that this uh, report was commissioned is a reflection of the, the changing landscape of cannabis in the United States. It's changing very rapidly. And the report was actually funded by several federal agencies um, and uh, several states, actually, for the National Academies of Medicine to take a look at the 
health effects of cannabis. And if you know these committees, it took half a morning to decide between marijuana and cannabis, but there's health <laughs> effects of cannabis. Um, and look at the, the information both on positive health effects as well as negative health effects. The report has nearly 100 conclusions. Um, but I have to say that boils down to about half a dozen for which we actually think we have firm evidence. And we'll get back to the rationale for that before. Um, in terms of positive effects, it's very clear that uh, the literature supports that some people with chronic pain, uh, muscle spasms from multiple sclerosis, and the nausea and vomiting with cancer chemotherapy experience some relief with cannabis. Um, and we looked at a whole bunch of other conditions and did not see such evidence. We also found that there is limited evidence that cannabis actually increases the use of other drugs. You may be surprised to know that it's tobacco. Uh, and not what you might be thinking. Uh, and there is moderate evidence to support the use of cannabis and substance abuse or um, <coughs> substance dependence or abuse, which is now problematic use uh, under the new DSM. Um, clearly acute use of marijuana leads to decreased impairments in learning, memory, and attention. Um, and there's some very limited evidence that this may persist afterwards. I think although um, we could not determine, actually, uh, the, the, the specific effects on adolescents. Um, evidence from other substances would suggest, other substances being tobacco and alcohol, that it would be prudent uh, not to have adolescents uh, using cannabis because they are particularly vulnerable to the effects of uh, psycho-affected uh, or organisms, uh, agents. Um, but that's about it out of 100 conclusions and 10,000 references. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Stacey, you've been, uh, you've been, you've been studying uh, tw 20 years now, that both the uh, recreational marijuana and medical marijuana. Now, uh, on, on the one hand, uh, we're talking about different uses here. On the other, in some ways, we're talking about the precise same plant, sure. uh, just used for different purposes. Yet you find some divergent results uh, depending on who or how it is being used. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So we actually have been studying the impact of recreational marijuana use for more than 20 years, um, and for the last two and a half, the effects of medical marijuana use. And you're absolutely right. It's very important to distinguish between the two. Most of what we know about the impact of marijuana on the brain comes from studies of recreational marijuana users, primarily those with chronic heavy use. Overall, as Marie mentioned, studies typically report differences or impairments, if you will, in cognitive function across a number of domains in those who use marijuana compared to those who don't. In our work, we've noted that the most striking differences are actually among those with what we call early onset marijuana use, that is, use prior to, in our studies, the age of 16, uh, compared to those who begin using later, particularly on tasks requiring what we call executive functions. These are things like the ability to utilize feedback to change your behavior or to inhibit inappropriate um, responses. This is perhaps not surprising since the brain continues to develop throughout the second and maybe even into the third decade of life and adolescence into early adulthood, as Marie alluded to, uh, represents a period of what we call neurodevelopmental vulnerability. Increased frequency and magnitude of use has also been shown to be associated with worse performance, and to date we have very little data on the potential impact of what we consider higher potency products, which are growing increasingly popular. On the other hand, while, so, while recreational users are typically seeking products very high in tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, the main psychoactive constituent with the goal of changing their state of being, 
Our medical marijuana patients typically seek treatment um, in order to alleviate symptoms rather than to experience the psychoactive effects. Accordingly, they often choose, but not, not always, but often choose products that are very different uh, from products that are very common among recreational users. They have a different chemical composition. So for example, they may select products with a range of other cannabinoids, including things like cannabidiol or CBD, often touted for its therapeutic effect, which is not intoxicating, as well as a number of other cannabinoids. Data from our, uh, our MIND program, the first project uh, is a large longitudinal observational study, the first of its kind, um, is really designed to assess very specifically the impact of medical marijuana on areas like cognitive performance, measures of brain structure and function, conventional medication use, and other variables in patients before they begin using medical marijuana so we can determine if there's any change. We follow them for up to two years. Um, in one study, that our first study actually, we recently reported improvements in a number of areas, including cognitive performance, sleep, um, and mood between baseline and after three months of treatment. Um, in addition, patients reported reductions in their use of conventional medications. Um, very importantly, uh, a 42% reduction in the use of opiates. This echoes what we've seen uh, from states that have fully legalized medical marijuana where the number of opiate-related prescriptions has decreased. So while these findings are preliminary, it's a very small sample size, we're really just getting started, um, it certainly provides evidence that suggests that medical marijuana may in fact uh, be beneficial for a number of patient groups, including those with chronic pain. Further research is critical but difficult, as I know Marie knows, given marijuana's current status as a Schedule I substance. All constituents from the plant are currently illegal under federal law. So that's another thing we should probably talk about at some point. That's a really striking finding that ca uh, medical marijuana may have improved cognitive performance. Can you very quickly just tease out why that might be? It may be that these folks, uh, the average age of onset of their medical marijuana treatment is significantly um, later than our recreational users and, and our studies, most of my colleagues across the country, average age in our <coughs> studies is about 49, and these are people who haven't used marijuana previously, or if they did, they have to be many years post that use. So it may be that they're beyond, let's say, the, the period of critical developmental vulnerability. They're not, they're not necessarily 20s and 30s. They're, they're older. It may also be a, a function of what they've selected to use. There are some cannabinoids that may be protective. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that that's true. Some of these cannabinoids may therefore prevent some of the deleterious effects we see in recreational users. Hard Thanks. to know yet. Thank you. Va sure. Vaughn, can you talk a little bit about how uh, marijuana policy regulations might be able to both protect and enhance public health going forward? Sure. <clears throat> I'm particularly interested in the changing regulatory environment for marijuana. And as we've seen the introduction of laws that have legalized the use and possession of marijuana and decriminalization of uh, marijuana use, um, those have had uh, uh, important advantages for resolving existing criminal justice and social justice problems. I'm delighted, for example, that in some states that have had three strikes laws, um, that, that there, there are kids who won't be locked up in some cases for life for the use of possession of marijuana and the impact that that may have on, on housing availability, educational attainment, and other important public health um, measures. Um, on the other hand, I am concerned that we haven't at this point in, uh, put in place adequate regulations to protect the health of the public from an expected uh, widespread increase in marijuana use, particularly as um, the perceptions of the safety um, of, or the, the risk of marijuana use changes among youth. Um, it's important that we put in place 
evidence-based strategies to ensure that we don't see a new epidemic of marijuana use uh, among kids. I come at this from the perspective of tobacco control. Most of the work that I do has been focused on understanding how to put in place evidence-based strategies to protect the public from tobacco-related harms. And we saw, it, it gives a great example of how we might proceed with marijuana. We saw in the 20th century the rise of a very powerful tobacco industry, a multinational um, uh, um, group of companies that um, went about uh, designing products to make them more addictive, to make them more appealing, and targeting those products to specific sections of the public who didn't previously smoke, including racial and ethnic minorities, women, uh, people from low-income backgrounds, people with mental illness. And we see some of the highest prevalence of tobacco use these days are among those vulnerable groups, those with mental illness, those with other substance use problems, and overwhelmingly people from low-income backgrounds. The tobacco industry was able to do that by innovating, uh, developing products, um, providing uh, ways in which they could deliver nicotine very quickly, um, very, uh, um, in a way that promoted dependence and promoted appeal. I'm concerned that we may see, without appropriate uh, regulations, an advent of a very powerful and very effective marijuana industry that targets vulnerable communities and promotes interest in use um, and uptake in marijuana use among adolescents. Um, and to address that, we have a number of very good evidence-based strategies which we haven't yet successfully employed, including putting in place excise taxes um, in a uniform way across states, limiting promotions and marketing of marijuana products. Um, I was contacted recently by, um, by a representative of uh, a Native American community who told me that a, a medical marijuana company has sponsored um, a, uh, a, a, a powwow, um, it is the um, the Gathering of Nations powwow, which is the world's largest athletic event for, for Native Americans, and they're promoting marijuana products among youth at, at, at this, this kind of event. We're likely to see a continuation of these sorts of activities and strategies by an increasingly powerful marijuana industry. So looking at the playbook that we've developed using tobacco, I think is an important way that we can proceed to both optimize the health benefits of marijuana use among, among um, a medical population, while reducing demand for marijuana and uptake of marijuana use among youth. And um, as, as we proceed, I'd be happy to explain some of those specific sure. strategies. And, Andrew, what have you learned on the ground on that, on that subject? You, know, you helped set up Colorado's <coughs> system. Um, you know, what do they do get right? What do they get wrong? Ooh, that's a big question. I, I would say um, we're, we're actually seconds. starving for, yeah, um, Colorado model in two minutes. Uh, the, um, uh, we're starving for public health information. And I, I would say that uh, despite what people might think about government, we actually do start with data and research and decide what's, a, what's the best policies from there. And we would gather once a week, once every other week with uh, the heads of the Department of Public Health, uh, the, the head of the Department of Human Services, uh, Public Safety, and we would pour through what little findings there were at that, at that time to, to decide how to put things uh, together. But I'll tell you, there's a lot lacking. Uh, uh, for instance, the supplement complement debate, and we feel very unsure about what to say about does this supplement or complement for tobacco, alcohol, prescription drugs, um, and driving while high. Uh, that we have some data on driving while high, but I'll tell you that data is really noisy because we just recently defined what it meant to drive while high and then trained up all our officers. And so all of the data we have is very noisy or absence altogether, which for government means you're governing with one ha uh, uh, arm behind your back. 
um, when you a point you could see that was really the edibles uh, governing. Um, and so, you know, edibles had been around forever in the medical world, but we didn't really know what it would look like in the recreational world. And so we didn't have the sort of information behind overconsumption, over accidental ingestion, uh, over normalization to kids when, when gummy bears, when, when edibles look like gummy bears or, or kids' candy. We've come in with regulations and public education campaigns in all those places, uh, but I think those could be both a lot faster uh, and a lot more nuanced uh, had we had more information uh, on the onset. Um, I would say in the absence we've done two things. One is we've taken the best practices that we can find from tobacco, alcohol, prescription drugs. And second, we've decided to remain flexible. I would say um, that we would say we're on version 1.0 and we, we will hope to be in version 8.0 three years from now because uh, this is a very rapidly changing landscape. Um, I would even say, I, I, I would say though that it's a it's a hard road, a tough road ahead, uh, in part because um, even the collection of data has become politicized. Uh, it's a very divisive issue right now. Uh, most of my job is Every, getting Everywhere people. or Colorado? Well, you, you, you're consulting with a number of states, right? Yeah, more so everywhere else but Colorado. Colorado, okay. there's at least begin to become some acceptance that this is... Okay. Everywhere else is arguing, should you uh, legalize marijuana? And, and the debate we lose then is, how do you legalize marijuana? regardless of where you stand on the first issue. So what we found was even collecting data, uh, there would be groups that would take very small pieces of data and run out to the media to say the worst thing, the sky is falling in Colorado and this is the, the, the heaven on earth in Colorado. And what we then didn't get a chance to do was communicate agnostic data, just to say this is what we're seeing right now. We're not drawing conclusions, but it's important that we all understand what we're seeing. That's really harmful for a public health discussion and really harmful uh, for creating good public health policy. Um, I will end with just a little bit of optimism. I, I think that um, despite the federal roadblocks and the polit politicization of, of this issue, um, there is going to be great chance for short-term public health research, particularly because we do track every marijuana plant from seed to sale with the radio frequency identifier tag. So we know what's being sold where and in what amounts, uh, at what frequency. Uh, and we can overlay that with driving while high data, uh, school suspension data, uh, a whole bunch of things that I hope in the near term will become uh, great use for, for other states looking to legalize marijuana, med medicinally or recreationally. Right now, now, you ran a public awareness campaign, and we have a couple of clips uh, from those. If we can play maybe two of those now. Remember when you made a baby? Check that. Remember when you had a baby? Amazing, right? But what's more amazing is everything you've taught your baby to eat, to walk, to talk, and pretty much everything else they know. That makes you amazing. And you're still teaching them every day. Only now, it gets harder. Now it's stuff like birds and bees and booze and weed, which is awkward and messy. But when hasn't it been? Remember diapers? So don't let awkward get in your way. Talk to your kids about marijuana so you can help them keep it from getting in their way. Get tools and tips at goodtoknowcolorado.com. You passed. What do we know about how effective those were? Uh, our initial data is pretty good at, at this, actually. Um, the, the, from a broad scale, the, our public health surveys haven't shown a statistically uh, significant change in youth consumption since we've legalized marijuana. I wouldn't say that we can, can pin those to the ads at all, but we do do pre and post surveys of those ads, and, and those actually had pretty good outcomes. Yeah. I'd also say that this was an evolution for us. Our, our first public health campaign for youth prevention 
looked a lot more like this is your brain on drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back to the politicization, uh, politicization of this issue and the divisiveness. I feel like that was a campaign, and I, I was a part of that, that came out a, a lot from the reaction of what would feel good for an adult who's against marijuana to see on TV and didn't come from actually talking to right. kids in focus groups uh, and figuring out what works and, and, and really pre-testing it and post-testing it with the exact audience you want to go to and, and change methods. Right. Um, I hope that that's an evolution that carries on to other states and that we actually get in competitions for who can, who can run the best youth prevention campaigns. Um, yeah, I, uh, th those are the sorts of strategies that we've found have been very effective with tobacco. So it's good to see that, that states such as Colorado are picking up and proceeding with that. We've seen the effect of those of the, those sorts of media campaigns as well as other strategies in reducing tobacco use nationally. I think it's worth recognising that among 12 to 17 year olds, the prevalence of, of current marijuana use is running at about twice that of tobacco. That is about twice as many kids have used marijuana in the United States in the past 30 days as have used tobacco. Um, tobacco is, the, is the, the drug or the product that's sold in virtually every, uh, every convenience store um, across the country, yet we've, uh, we've managed to curtail um, dramatically the, the prevalence of tobacco use. And um, these sorts of initiatives are, are most welcome in terms of uh, reducing um, uptake of marijuana among youth. We also need to get information out there about the health effects um, specifically on youth and educate parents and educate uh, to kids about that um, because if we don't then the marijuana industry is likely to uh, um, right. um, you know communicate these products in very different ways. Andrew if you could I wanted you to pick up on something that Stacy mentioned when uh, a little bit ago where she said that uh, some 40 plus percent of people in a small sample that that she had overseen uh, were able to reduce opiate uh, consumption by substituting uh, medical marijuana for, for pain. Have, have you seen any effect on the opioid epidemic in, in Colorado or elsewhere where uh, marijuana has been legalized? Well, I, I've read the research papers that show that states with legalized medical marijuana have seen an opioid decrease. Uh, we are watching closely what's happened since recreational came online. Uh, I, we have not seen a sharp decrease, uh, I think, Correlation versus causation here is, is, is pretty tricky, so I, I would give it more time. Uh, and I do think that's a delayed effect, right? Uh, that it could take up to five years for that to show up in, in your data, if not longer. Uh, but we have see, we did see um, some effect from, from the medical side when that really turned uh, 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 broadly available back in 2010. Stacey, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna yeah. say that the, the literature, however, does not support the use of cannabis to treat opioid dependence. So you can't use it to, to make that better. Whether there's some substitution in terms of what medication people are using for pain is one thing, but we did not find any evidence that it actually is useful in terms of getting people off opiates. You, do, you did find evidence that it was useful for uh, pain reduction. Is oh, that, absolutely. Right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that well, basically, um, the, the element there was that it, it was found that uh, uh, cannabis, but I, I have to say this isn't for the most part not smoking cannabis. This is the other things that Stacy were talking about. Mar Marinol does reduce uh, symptoms in people with chronic pain, so it can be useful in that regard. And although it was not available when we ended our uh, data collection, which was August of last year, there are some emerging effects that it's also useful in reducing some forms of uh, very severe child uh, seizure disorders. Mm -hmm. So I think the the 
data are accumulating on its, some of its therapeutic right. uses. Right, and if it, right. any suggestions you can draw from what, what you found? I mean, if, if it is the case that one of the things that it, it can be useful for is, is pain, then it does seem like it would be able to substitute for a lot of people. Yeah, I, you know, long-term opiate use. Uh, absolutely, I think you know. Again, the report is so helpful, and it gives us a place to start. We also have lots of folks who, you know, give us a fair amount of anecdotal data, and it's so difficult to weed through it, right? Because no pun intended. Uh, but you have to weed through it because this is what they tell you. They tell you that they feel better after using these products, and in fact, they don't need opiates anymore. And people who had problems with opiate use, um, separate and apart from pain treatment, often utilize some kind of step-down programs. We may not have any data on it yet at all, which is what the report is telling us. We desperately need that data. We, we need to take an anecdotal finding and sort of expand it and, and blow it out and see if there really is something to it. Right, and not having data doesn't mean it. we don't. Absolutely, right. and that's, I mean, that's right. the, the strength of anecdotal findings. Some of the greatest discoveries uh, on, on the planet come from what? Anecdotal findings first that we then you know, go to, to study right. with clinically sound, empirically right. designed trials. So, so Vaughn, in, in this debate, uh, marijuana, cannabis is up against big pharma. Mm -hmm. On the other side, it's up against big tobacco, mm -hmm. too. Or maybe it's becoming part of big tobacco. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what these big companies are doing when it well, comes to we're cannabis? Seeing, we're seeing an increasing blurring between the marketing of marijuana products and, uh, and tobacco products. And we're seeing packaging of marijuana uh, joints in, uh, in boxes that look like cigarettes. We're seeing the introduction of menthol into uh, marijuana products, which we, we know that menthol has helped to promote the ease of uh, use of tobacco products. It makes it smoother, easier to inhale. Uh, we're seeing that being introduced into marijuana products. We're seeing the uh, we're seeing the uh, involvement of the the big tobacco manufacturers in the marijuana industry. And Altria, the the world's biggest uh, tobacco company, has uh, has claimed the rights to uh, uh, two websites, Altria Cannabis and AltriaMarijuana.com, which uh, which raises concerns about their future involvement in this industry. So, as the as the power and resources <laughs> of these uh, these uh, companies. Uh, come into play uh, with marijuana products, um, you know, we, we have serious concerns about how these products will be developed, uh, designed and marketed to specifically to youth. Marie, what was the thing that surprised you the most uh, when, when you delved into the research? How um, little there is. Um, you know, one of the, I think that in, from chapter after chapter after chapter, uh, basically articulates the flaws in, in the, um, the literature. Part of this is the regulatory barriers for doing marijuana research or cannabis research because of the need because it is a Schedule One drug that is a drug that is only addictive and has no therapeutic use. And so the regulatory hoops of doing uh, research in this area are substantial. But there are also other areas, and our report deals with these. One of these is that one needs to develop some uniform measure of exposure to cannabis. The studies range from, have you ever taken it, Never, yes or no, to very detailed questions about how much you smoked in the last week. Um, and there's no standard, so you can't compare across studies. Uh, and even if you got how much you took in, in 1980, um, that's 4% uh, tetrahydrocannabinol. If you're taking the same amount today, it's 13 to 14% tetrahydrocannabinol. So you can't really compare studies now to studies then. Um, and the other biggie, which we've been talking about, is other drug use. Uh, m most of these studies really can't tease out 
cannabis separately from tobacco and other kinds of drugs that people are, are taking. So we actually recommended that there needs to develop a really comprehensive science uh, agenda for studying the short-term and long-term effects of cannabis, um, that we need to have the feds sit down and make it and decide how we're going to measure this, in, particularly in the absence of any uh, significant blood <coughs> or biomarkers, that we have to improve surveillance. And that means not only in the states that are doing it, but also putting these questions into national health interview surveys so we know what's happening across in representative populations. And finally, they really need to take a look at the research barriers to studying this, and particularly whether uh, it's still reasonable to consider this a Schedule One drug. Right. I want to open it up in a second to questions, but Andrew, go ahead. And then, and then I want to also ask you uh, how people around in, at the state level are handling the the posture of the of this this administration, which mm -hmm. isn't actually as clear as what Sean Spicer said. He said <laughs> they're going to be very aggressive about this, but actually the Obama administration said the exact same thing while they were not doing that and while they were issuing memos that were contradicting. They would, they would say it's still illegal federally, but X. So like, w how are people handling this bizarre kind of conflict? So let me touch really quickly on, because I do think that there's an important point. Uh, I think th I agree with everything on the federal level that we should be demanding public health research as fast as possible on the public health uh, uh, level. Um, for the, on the federal level, <coughs> I would say on the state level, <coughs> we should be gathering baseline data as fast as we can in the states that are, are looking towards changing everything. And I'll give a, a, a few quick ex examples. I mentioned before driving while high is very noisy data right now, and that's because we tend to use marijuana money to enforce driving while high, which creates a huge uh, uh, observation bias uh, when you come in. Um, I would really like to do some great uh, county-specific driving while high uh, research before legalization so that we can have a better ex uh, idea of how legalization affects it. On the, on the Trump question, uh, it's, it feels like we're building castles on sand, and that's, that's really difficult when you're talking about good government. Um, it, is, it is not dissimilar to um, uh, the year before the legalization of, of marijuana in Colorado, where we, we really didn't know where Obama was going to come down. Uh, but then once they came down, they actually stayed at that <coughs> position. Uh, and um, that's kind of the most we can ask for right now is um, we don't believe our regulators are, are committing a crime uh, the way we read uh, the Supremacy Clause. Do you, Trump administration? Because that would be a big deal for us. And we need to know that, we need to know that urgently because these are good people who are doing uh, uh, government work. They're not distributing marijuana. They're, they're enforcing public health and public safety regulations. Uh, and banks that uh, are keeping money off the street and uh, providing some level of additional regulatory oversight, um, those are the people that get scared out first. Uh, and and the, the people who are left in uh, the industry are kind of the, the people more, adver more okay with risk, which are ten generally not your legitimate actors. And so um, I would say confusion is not a great thing when you're talking about public health and public safety. And so it's a new administration. We hope we'll get clarity soon, um, but uh, we're fearful we won't. Uh, what is the banking situation now? Uh, very quickly, and this is the only pun I ever do, uh, it's, it's not an unbanked situ uh, uh, industry. It's a half-banked industry. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And Terrible. normally gets groans. Um, oh, brutal. Uh, or I say it's like an edibles joke. You'll get it in two hours. Um, and so, uh, uh, what we have found is that people have found have gone through 
uh, rigorous compliance methods with. There is, actually is guidance on how to bank this. It just requires you to know your customer like you've never known your customer before. Uh, and we've had third-party compliance companies that have come up and are able to do that with complex analytical systems. Um, and that has led to, I mean, I, I think we're, we're well banked in Colorado at this point. And Stacy, when it comes to data, uh, at the same time, um, what's it been like to try to collect it and do research without access to the actual thing that you're trying to? Right. So there is access. Um, right now, the only source that you can use to actually do studies where you're going to administer cannabis or a cannabinoid-based product, any, any marijuana, comes from NIDA. It's all grown at Ole Miss. Um, and while the drug supply program has expanded exponentially at NIDA, it doesn't necessarily reflect what pe people for both recreational and medical purposes are actually taking. And so from a researcher's perspective, as a clinical researcher, I'm really interested and desperate to know what are the effects that these patients are going to experience using their products. Um, you know, some of these high potency products, for example, run north of 40, 50, 80% THC. Is it likely that we're gonna see the same effects uh, from recreational use of these, what we call concentrates, dabs, shatter, wax, butter, versus old conventional flower products that used to be four or 5%, now about 12 to 13%, maybe not. In our medical patients, we should find a way somehow to vet the actual products patients are using across the country, submit them for testing, make sure they're clear and clean, and somehow get them into some supply program where researchers like me can study them effectively. That's, in that's in some challenge. ways, it sort of seems like, tell me if this is wrong, telling somebody to go out and study the effect of Vivitrol by studying a drug that's kind of similar <laughs> to it. Right. And so what do you do? Like, how, like what would you recommend if, if you could set the policy on research? Um, well, to, thankfully, to, I'm not a policymaker, right. but <laughs> it's a, very, well, it's a somebody, tough time. But yeah. As somebody who's tried to do research and Absol run up against right. uh, Absolutely. the shoals of the... Yeah, I, I think you know we, we do our best with regard to these observational type studies and we have individuals keep extraordinarily complex logs um, and detailed records and they're online, you know, we do it electronically, the old pencil paper fashion, whatever will work for patients and recreational users will do. Um, we also have samples from each one uh, of our folks who are in studies submitted uh, to a lab for, for testing, so we know what they're using. But it would be much better to go the other way and to utilize the power and the knowledge from places like dispensaries and growers in states like Colorado and California who have literally optimized grows for patients with specific indications like pain, for example, and understand how they got to where they are and how their patients are doing by allowing us to study in an empirically sound way. So we would know, not just anecdotally, if it really works. Lisa, do we have a question from the from online, or should we start with the studio? No, I think well, let's start with online. Okay. We have a ton of questions coming in, and we're not going to be able to take all of them. So please join our live chat. You can continue on there as well. Um, we have questions from policy leaders and the general public. So uh, let's take this one. It's from Edward Red, Dr. Edward Red, uh, representative in the Utah House of Rep. He has several questions. Um, he's asking if there is any evidence to suggest that CBD may be useful in managing schizophrenia or other psychiatric disorders. He also asked about CBD and or THC to treat MS, neuropathy, cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, and a few other disorders. So Marie, maybe you could comment? Uh, we found no evidence that it was useful in treating schizophrenia. It was useful f for treating spasm and MS. For the rest of the conditions you list, there was no information that it was useful. That doesn't mean it may not be. It's just that the studies have not been done. 
Stacy, any thoughts on that? The only thought is, uh, you know, just to echo what Marie said, you know, we have very little data. There's some, some data from other countries suggesting that CBD has been useful for some uh, symptoms related to anxiety and um, some evidence of antipsychotic effect, but these are very few studies um, and there's not much out there, but there's a little tiny signal. So I think it's something that people remain interested in, but it's hard, you know, again, you have the sort of definitive report uh, right here, so there's not much yet to go yes. on. Yeah, it's right, it's right, right here. here. <laughs> Literally right here. I wasn't Bedtime joking. Yeah. I wasn't joking. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, this is another one that just came in. Could the panelists comment on the recent study that came out of the American College of Cardiology? It claims that marijuana use increases the risk of stroke and heart disease. I would also like to hear their thoughts on the product recalls that are occurring in many states due to abnormally high pesticide levels. Any thoughts on that? Anybody have I can start on cardi pesticides? Yeah, do the pesticides. Pesticides were the worst part of my life for about six months. Um, <laughs> pesticides is one other place where uh, not having the federal government involved is, is really uh, um, problematic. And I would say um, uh, the, both the regulation and enforcement of pesticides is almost entirely a game that the EPA plays and the FDA. Uh, and it's, we've never had to, as a state, in-house all of that. That is entirely new. Uh, and it's something we, we decided to do uh, for marijuana because um, people were using it. And uh, surprisingly, no other state had done that, even with medical marijuana uh, up, and, up and running. Uh, we ended up taking, you know, pesticides kind of have to be innocent until, uh, guilty until proven innocent because there's tens of thousands of them. Um, and so we ended up taking a very stringent line and, and uh, only approving about 25 pesticides that are, really look more like oils and soaps mo much more often than chemicals. Uh, what we ended up seeing was a lot of people had grows uh, that, um, that, due to their economics, they had to use pesticides in order to stay afloat. Uh, and so we did find a lot of people, particularly with Eagle 20 on, on their marijuana, and there's very little about what Eagle 20 does, uh, but there is some evidence that it cleaves off hydrogen cyanide when heated to over 400 degrees, and so we thought it best not to give it to, to consumers. Uh, and so um, a lot of marijuana did go on hold. I will tell you, the stuff we find and seize from illegal home grows have really bad pesticides on them, and so uh, it might be one of the best things that comes out of regulating is to actually look at how are we growing this marijuana, and can it be a cleaner product? Great, thank you. In terms of the uh, association with heart attack, stroke, and diabetes, the evidence is extremely limited. Uh, the strongest evidence we found is that acutely uh, cannabis may trigger a heart attack, but chronic use is not associated with cardiovascular disease. And the evidence with, with respect to stroke and um, uh, diabetes is extremely limited. By that, it means we couldn't find very much. Great, thank you, thank you. I'll take one more from online and then we can take some from our audience here. Um, let's see, this is from Karen Fisher. Since the marijuana plant approved for research by NIDA has such a low THC content, is it safe to say we have no idea about the short and long-term effects on teens about use once a week or more of higher THC content plants and concentrates? How are we going to discover these effects? So it's a great question. And actually, so just to be clear, it's not that NIDA has only low uh, potency um, strains available. Again, they've expanded their portfolio exponentially um, over the last several years, and I think they now have strains that go up to about 14%. Many states, of course, on average, exceed 14%, including uh, 
many of whom, m many of our folks that come through our lab at about 16, 18 percent, but this is Massachusetts. Colorado is about 18 as well. So it's a great question. I think what we know about the effects of marijuana or cannabis on the brain, especially in early onset folks, kids who are using during adolescence, comes without much information about the effect of specific potency, right, or specific strains because, in fact, I'm not aware of studies that are actually administering NIDA-based product to adolescents. We don't do that. Uh, <laughs> we just don't. Um, but, but the other part of the question, which is actually a really, really good one, has to do with infrequent use. Um, as I mentioned, most of what we know about the effects of marijuana on the brain come from studies of fairly regular, chronic, consistent users, although, again, the definitions, the metrics, are not particularly well described. Um, so one study group's uh, definition of regular use or consistent use may be very different from, from another. Casual could be once a month or two to three times a week, depending on the study group. So we certainly need more data. Uh, I, I, would add, I would add with, with uh, understanding um, marijuana products, we, we need to look at the way the marijuana industry is innovating its products. And we've learned, you know, through many years with tobacco that, uh, that additives, certain additives can increase the temperature of the burn of the, the coal at the end of the product, which changes the particles that are delivered to the consumer. And that may allow deeper penetration into the lung, more rapid uptake of THC. Uh, there are additives that make, uh, make, make the smoke easier to consume. There are, there are many ways in which the product can be innovated. So it's not just an issue of, of uh, potency but a question of uh, the pharmacokinetics of, of uh, THC and how THC can be better delivered to a consumer to increase the addictive potential of the product uh, while making it more appealing to kids. The other thing is that some of those concentrates are, are literally created by using things like hexane um, and butane, which of mm. course are not things mm. that we want to introduce. Some are solventless, but in order to get those really high potency products, um, there's a method that's used that introduces these other chemicals. So that's another important consideration. Thank you for addressing that because we had another question on that as well. So, uh, Do we want to take an audience question? And if there are none, we can we, go back to online. I think we have one right back here. I actually have two quick questions. One, is there any studies on comparison of different ratio of CBD and THC in a product. And the second question is for Stacey. You mentioned that some cognitive behavior gets improved. I was wondering which, what type of cognitive behavior. So, want to take it? Want me to take it? Up to you. There, yeah. there are some studies, very recent studies, that have looked at the effect of um, THC-based products and products with higher CBD. Again, these are sort of lab-based studies to determine whether or not there's an increased psychoactivity with or without CBD on board. These are just starting to be published, actually. I'm only aware of one in the last couple of months, actually. Um, so we're starting to get this data, and it does look uh, as if the presence of CBD and likely other constituents <coughs> on board sometimes mitigates the negative or less desirable effects of THC. Um, your second question. What type of cognitive enhancements so did you see? In our study, again, um, a pilot study, now we have more subjects, thankfully, uh, but when we went to publication, it was a very small sample who had completed visit one and visit two after three months of treatment. We saw improvements in executive function, so the ability to do these complex tasks faster, um, but without an accuracy trade-off, so they were doing just as well. Um, so that was very encouraging to us, um, something important to follow up for sure. 
thank you. Um, I think the comparison uh, with other drugs is so instructive. I found the tobacco thing so fascinating. Could you make a comparison with alcohol in terms of physiological effects, good and bad, and the sort of cultural legal framework of the whole question? Uh, in terms of the health effects of marijuana compared with alcohol? Health effects, yes. Um, I, I think, you know, I'll speak very generally to that point, but I think this is, this is instructive. Um, again, I'm, I'm more interested in adolescent use. Um, uh, the earlier the age of initiation and development of symptoms of dependence, the worse the outcomes uh, in terms of severity of dependence, difficulty quitting and other life problems associated with use. Those, those patterns are similar for, for marijuana as they are with, uh, with alcohol. Um, alcohol, you know, as we know, can undermine educational attainment, it can um, undermine cognitive performance, it can, is associated with increased risk of uh, injury um, and, and many other uh, high-risk behaviours among adolescents. To some extent, some of those patterns may be true uh, with marijuana, particularly uh, undermining educational attainment and impact on cognitive performance. So, you know, we see similar patterns there. We also see uh, that the very powerful alcohol whole industry have targeted their products to youth and so they've you know we've, we've seen this play out um, you know in re in previous years and we we need to have you know as I keep saying regulations to ensure that we can protect youth from these same uh, outcomes with marijuana I think the comparisons are somewhat difficult uh, in the presentation we had from the National Transportation Safety Board uh, and their effects of alcohol versus uh, cannabis on traffic accidents it turns out with alcohol, people don't recognize they're impaired and therefore take risks. It turns out actually the people on cannabis realize they're impaired and slow down. And so it, it may not be as straightforward as, as saying, it, you know, it's just like. So, it, so that's not a joke. The NTSB actually says that. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that was their, their data they were presenting. They yeah. actually, they actually could not come it. down to say that cannabis actually increases traffic accidents. Uh, in part because, you know, the other things that are going on, young men using other substances are in the traffic accidents. Right. So I would say that it's an important question in a different way, which is that uh, regardless of, of what, how it actually lays on top as a framework from a public health point of view, from a political point of view and from a messaging point of view, it is what the, pro, the advocates are saying, is that it's safer than alcohol. It's the most common uh, political framework with which to pass legalization. And it actually becomes a criminal justice argument over time, which is, uh, in some ways, makes sense, right? Why would you treat a marijuana user criminally different than how you would treat a, a marijuana user, particularly when the, the health data is so much worse for, for alcohol? In some ways, it becomes a silly argument over time, because sometimes they actually see marijuana itself as a, hey, you can't treat marijuana that way. You know, sure you can. I mean, it might, we, we can be more restrictive with marijuana than we are, are with alcohol, in part because we've learned more from alcohol about how to do this better, and why would we make the same mistakes we made in alcohol with marijuana. Uh, but people attach the criminal justice element of treat marijuana like alcohol to actual marijuana itself. Um, the second thing I would say is um, this is a place where we would love some more supplement complement data. Um, I think that the, we look in the DUID data and what we're concerned about is do people smoke and drink and drive? Uh, and we don't know enough about that, to be, to be honest. Um, what do we know? 
uh, well, this is where the, the data is very noisy, but um, we, we do know that for the most part, when we're pulling over drivers for, for driving while high, they also have another substance in, in their system. There's some evidence that's shown that in states that have, uh, that have uh, uh, I think, legalized medical marijuana, that there's a lower proportion of drivers that are picked up with opioids on board. But on the other hand, uh, the fatality data in Colorado does show an increase in people testing positive for THC, drivers testing po positive for THC that have been involved in, uh, in roadside fatalities. But That's which, really messy data. Which That's means why they I'm, may have smoked at some point in the last week. But at some point, it could be one hour before, it could be three weeks, weeks. before. Yeah. 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 Depends Again, on the user. a place that could use some much deeper study than currently exists. We're getting a lot of questions about the Trump effect, as people are calling it. So um, I'll just take one, but we have a lot along these lines. This is from Rory O'Connor. What is your best guess as to precisely what actions the Trump administration and Jeff Sessions' Justice Department will take, and when, in terms of enforcement of federal law making marijuana illegal, as opposed to state laws making it legal for medical, recreational, or both uses? Anybody want that? Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> not, to, not to say I like taking it, but I'll take it. Um, so my crystal ball broke on November 8th, uh, and so uh, I will still give you my best guess, but um, that's, I, I, I have almost no more insight than anybody else on it. Um, my guess is what will happen is there will be the, the Cole memo, which is the, the um, uh, enforcement directive that the entire legalization, both medical and recreational, is based on. My guess is they will actually withdraw that, that memo. I think a lot of people in the Department of Justice find the idea that this exists in memo form to be morally repugnant. Um, and uh, that's much more on a legal basis than it is on anything else. Um, and uh, my guess is that uh, they'll continue to enforce much like they did enforce, they, they do currently enforce, which is uh, with special priorities and, and not with a, a purpose to shut down recreational and medical licensing systems. It's also unclear to me legally whether or not, um, and I'm a lawyer, but this is not my legal advice, whether or not they actually have the power to shut down the licensing systems uh, in states. I think they have the power to go and arrest a, a single licensee uh, but our regulators, I think, have the power to enforce public health and public safety regulations. Uh, and so in that case, uh, what they would be left with is really you'd have to hire thousands of DEA agents and hundreds of judges in order to prosecute the cases of bringing every licensee through. And so my guess is it ends up looking a lot more like the Cole Memo, even without the Cole Memo being there, uh, than, than anything else. But I think there'll be a lot of confusion, and, and that will mean a lot of freezing of industry. And my, my sense on this, because I've written a lot about this, is that the, the, I, my guess is the DEA will do as much as it feels like it can get away with. It is kind of a, an entity to itself. And so they will take some, they will make some moves that may be in violation of the Cole memo. They will defend it as not really in violation of the Cole memo because it didn't meet, you know, they'll, they'll have lawyerly. And they will see if they get away with that. And then if they do, they will, they will push further and push further until uh, the Department of Justice pushes back, which they may never do, which will just create a lot of confusion over the years. I'm in agreement. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we have a lot, lot of questions, so please everyone go on our chat and we'll put all of them that were coming in on there as well. So really quickly, then we have a couple minutes left. Um, if In about a minute or two, if we could get uh, one one policy recommendation that you would give to somebody who 
is, could be remotely receptive to it. <laughs> uh, Marie, do you want to start? I think the main one that we have from our report, and by the way, policy was not in the scope of this report, um, is what we've been hearing all along, that we desperately need more research, and there should be an absolutely organized body of, of an organized approach to doing that. That was very fast. That it wasn't was. a minute. You, you, you know, I was prepping myself for a You don't have a, a full two minutes. I, I guess I do. I, I would say that really we're in a situation where policies outpace science. And um, despite the single term, as I mentioned before, you know, that we use marijuana to describe everything that comes from the plant, it certainly isn't all the same and probably shouldn't really be considered the same. We need a lot more work in this area. But it's really imperative that as researchers and people invested in public health and policy, we're able to study the effects, the good and the bad. As scientists, we're supposed to present unbiased findings. Regardless of how you feel about the issue, you have to report what the data show you. And in order to do that, you have to be able to do the research. So I think that legislation which eases restriction for clinical research and provides expanded access to a wider platform um, of products already in use, with appropriate oversight, of course, um, ultimately informs public health and policy efforts and keeps our consumers, whether they're recreational or medical patients, safe and well-informed, which is their right. I also think marijuana's been around for thousands of years. We tend to forget this. We sometimes treat it as if it's brand new. It's been around since at least 2700 BC. Used across the, the world by millions of people not likely to necessarily be going anywhere despite its legal status. Regardless of where you go in the world, um, doesn't matter whether it's legal or illegal, people are using it. So our job, again, as scientists and policymakers and legislators, is really to find out the good, the bad, and the truth and help people make good, sound decisions uh, so that they can take the best care of themselves possible. Vaughn? I think those are great points, and actually I would respond to that. I think marijuana has certainly been around for thousands of years, but we're seeing it used now in ways that we've never seen previously. It's being introduced into vaporizers, into e-cigarette type devices. There are the, the industry is innovating new ways to make the product appealing and deliver it to, 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 to people so that it optimizes the effects and increases addictiveness. So these, these are concerns that I have that I think that the landscape of, to, of marijuana products is changing rapidly. Rapidly, um, and with it may come an epidemic of use, particularly among young people, uh, which, which could undermine their well-being and, and the public health in general. So those are my concerns and, uh, you know, we do have a science base on which we can draw from and that is the one that we've used very effectively with tobacco, which has got tobacco use rates among youth at, at half that of marijuana. We need to um, increase uh, taxes on marijuana products, or at least to adopt a uniformly high level of excise tax on marijuana to make them less affordable, less appealing to kids. We need to restrict promotions and advertising, um, storefront advertising, which which is uh, um, used in most uh, uh, states where marijuana is legalized, it, uh, varies from place to place and allows certain health claims or certain claims which, uh, which uh, may promote interest and, uh, in, among youth and uh, reduce their perceptions of the risk of the product. So th these are strategies which we can fairly quickly and immediately employ to reduce demand for marijuana products and, and, uh, and restrain an industry which, uh, which is really targeting youth and targeting vulnerable populations as we speak. I'm going to put just a little bit of meat on the bones of an actual political next step to, because uh, I agree with everybody, there needs to be a call towards research in this and not just clearing the barriers. I think the federal government should be putting significant resources uh, into public health and medicinal research for marijuana. Uh, my, my suggestion would be uh, the federal government has been stuck in a debate on whether or not legalization is a good idea for 60 years. Uh, 
this group, um, myself maybe included, but, but particularly people on this side of me, um, uh, has an obligation, I think, to band together as a coalition and, and really approach the federal government in an actual lobbying context uh, to say, we're not here to debate the merits of legalization. We're here to say uh, it's absolutely bananas that we can't do research on this because it's happening everywhere right now, and we are not, we are not serving the public good by not doing research on it. And so carve this out specifically. This is not about the legalization of marijuana. This is about uh, good public health policy. Uh, and I think until this group comes and has its own voice at the table uh, and own its own very specific lobbying policy, it's just going to be the same noise it's been before, which is uh, pro-legalization pro versus anti-legalization. Uh, and that's not a debate that's very helpful to America. And my own policy recommendation, which nobody has asked for, is just legalize it. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for uh, joining us. Uh, I want to plug, I want to thank the forum. Uh, I also want to th uh, plug an event on Monday. This is it, uh, 1.30 live here. Uh, is Race and Policing, State and Local Perspectives. So come back then and join us. Uh, I will not be here, uh, but the forum will be. And thank you so much to our panelists and everybody for the great questions. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.